This morning we are taking a brief one-week break from our study of Ephesians. We'll be getting back to that next Sunday. Uh, and we're going to be studying uh, in the Luke, uh, in the Gospel of Luke chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the life of Jesus and also his mother Mary. Mary, the mother of Jesus. I'm sure many of you are familiar with her. Uh, maybe know a little bit about her. Um, before we get into Luke chapter 1... This morning I want to speak to you about someone that we traditionally associate with Christmas. Okay, think Christmas. Who do we traditionally associate with Christmas? Someone who was selected for a special task and was totally unique, but their unique assignment made them the object of ridicule and scorn. And despite the challenges associated with their assignment, they were still able to deliver to the world great joy. I think you all know who we're talking about here. <laughs> Rudolph, no, I'm just kidding. We're not going to talk about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I just had too much time this week, and so I was fiddling around. Okay, we're going to actually talk about Mary, the mother of Jesus, because Mary serves as an excellent example to us of what it means to love Jesus and to serve Jesus. Now, I want to make it clear that at True Vine, here at True Vine, we do not sing to Mary, we do not pray to Mary, we don't worship Mary, we don't venerate Mary, but we can learn much from Mary's example, and we do honor Mary as someone who went before us and was faithful in fulfilling her purpose and her calling, and someone who brought glory to Jesus. So while we don't have a statue of Mary or paintings of Mary or anything like that, we still honor Mary and see Mary as an excellent example of a follower of Jesus, someone that glorified Jesus and was faithful in their specific calling and purpose to serve Jesus. So we're going to learn from Mary's life. I want to read from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. So if you have a Bible in front of you, Luke 1, 26 through 38, it'll also be up on the screen here, and I'm going to be reading uh, from what's on the screen. So an angel named Gabriel, oh, here, I, I did it again. There we go. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, it's coming, was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin, engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, the angel said to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear, uh, bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. This is John the Baptist's mom, Elizabeth, because they were cousins. And she who is called uh, barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word, and the angel departed from her. So what I want to do first is just go through this 
kind of verse by verse and get some of the historical context so that you can be thinking the way that they were thinking. Then I want to look at the specific statement that the angel said, uh, you are highly favored or you are the favored one and the Lord is with you. That's the actual statement, the text that we're going to look at in depth, uh, in depth this morning. But really quickly, in verse 27, we see that Mary and Joseph are engaged. It's actually a little stronger than what we would think of when we think of engagement. Uh, they were betrothed. So when they were, got engaged, this wasn't like he got down on his knee and gave her a ring and she said yes and then they planned a marriage. They actually got the families together. And those of you that are familiar with the exchange of dowries, this was like that. There was actually a financial arrangement made between the two families where resources changed hands. So I don't know if any of you ever, does anyone here ever have to pay a dowry? I know we have families in our church, there were two in the first service that had to pay dowries. Uh, the, the wife's family had to make a financial gift to the husband's family. And I mean, I hope it was a lot. I hope it was like, you know, a million dollars or a thousand sheep or something, you know, like, so, but there was a financial arrangement that took place here. Listen, their concept of engagement is way stronger than our concept of engagement. We can break an engagement off with a text. Not that you should, but you could. We can break an engagement off, but they, it was actually, you had to get divorced if you broke an engagement off in the Bible. Now, I'm not, it doesn't need to be that way in our culture because there's no command that it needs to go that way. It's just the way the culture was. So it was actually a legal arrangement. They, had to return, they would have to return the money, all that stuff. So their engagement was serious, and they were probably never unchaperoned. Mary and Joseph probably always had a chaperone when they were together. There was some other third party to make sure that there was no funny business. You know what I mean by funny business? Okay, good. Last week I talked about circumcision. Today I'm going to talk about virginity. It's a good week at True Vine. <laughs> All right. So they were engaged. They were betrothed. In verse 27, we read that David was a, uh, sorry, Joseph was a descendant of David. So David, King David, was the greatest king of Israel prior to Jesus. He was the second king of Israel. Uh, everyone looked up to David. Bethlehem was called the city of David. Uh, they sang songs that David sang. So that's like being the descendant of almost like George Washington, like, you know, the president, the first president. David wasn't the first king, but he was the king that everyone loved the most. Joseph was the descendant of David. This is important because they had been waiting for hundreds of years, generations, that there was going to be a king from David's family, and they knew that that king was going to be the Messiah. Because there was prophecies in Isaiah and other places that there was going to be a king from the line of David, from the lineage of David, that was going to rule and reign forever. In fact, it says as much in verses 32 and 33, it says that this child will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. So they know that you know, someday there's going to be this Messiah figure. He's going to come and he's going to institute a kingdom that will never end. Literally never end. Not like That's not a metaphor for a really long time. They're saying it's, it's a permanent, eternal kingdom. So... 
this angel shows up to Mary. Mary's probably 13, 14, 15. They just got younger. They got married younger back then. Joseph is probably 18-ish, maybe 20. Roman men got married in their late 20s, early 30s. Jewish men got married in their late teens, early 20s. And then the Jewish girls were even younger. You know, like I said, 12, 13, 14, 15, something like that. They're engaged. This is totally normal in their culture. What is not normal is angels showing up. You know, we think of like angelic visitations as rare. Listen, it's rare then too. You know, we, when you read the Bible, you're like, man, there's like, it seems like there's angels and miracles on every page. And there is, for the most part. But remember that the Bible covers about 1,500 years. And also remember that prior to this activity, there were 400 years of what we call silence. There were no more prophets. There weren't many visions or visitations, if any at all. And so <clears throat> the engagement's normal. The ages are normal. All the cultural stuff is normal. But then this angel Gabriel shows up. This is out of the ordinary. The Bible only lists, as far as I can count, three specific angels. Gabriel, who is a messenger, he always just brings messages. Michael, who is like a warrior, like a fighter. And then the third would be Satan. And Satan's even not his real name, it's just the name that we give him. So Gabriel's a messenger. Michael's a fighter or a warrior. Satan is an accuser. Obviously, Satan started off serving God, but rebelled and brought about a third of the angels with him. When the angel says that this child that you're going to carry is going to sit on David's throne and rule forever, I think Mary is starting to pick up what he's putting down. People ask all, people ask all the time, did Mary know that, was she aware <coughs> that Jesus was the Messiah? Or was this just, you know, a normal virgin pregnancy? with an angel. <laughs> I think Mary was on, I think Mary understood well, we're referencing all these prophecies in Isaiah. Like there's only one king that's going to come from David's line that's going to have an eternal throne. That's going to be the Messiah. So, I think Mary, I mean, I don't, I don't think she knew every little detail, but I think she knew, oh. Oh, this is that. This we're talking about the Messiah. Because it says that she was perplexed and she pondered all of this in her heart. And so, uh, you know, have you ever heard that song, Mary, Did You Know? Yeah. Would you like me to sing it? Yeah. Oh. Mary, did you know? Okay. The, the premise of the song is, was Mary aware that that little baby she was holding would be the Messiah? Well, <laughs> I think the answer is, yup. I mean... Angel shows up, that's different. She's a virgin, that's different. What did the angel say? This baby's going to be a king from the line of David who's going to have an eternal kingdom. Yeah, I think Mary, was. she knew something, you know? Now, I don't know if she knew that he was going to walk on water, and I don't know if she knew that he was going to feed 5,000 people, but I think she understood the big picture of this situation, which is this is a unique circumstance. I believe that this is leading into to the Messiah in the establishment of his kingdom. So this is a unique situation. Now in verse 34, <coughs> <coughs> she, 
she asks this interesting question. She asks, how can this be since I am a virgin? Now put yourself in her shoes 2,000 years ago in their culture. In their culture, virgins couldn't get pregnant. <laughs> Much like our culture, right? That hasn't changed. I don't care what you saw in Jerry Springer. <laughs> virgins still can't get pregnant, okay? So this is not... Listen, I think that's a good question. How can this be since I'm a virgin? You know, the first person to doubt the virgin birth was the virgin. People have questioned that ever since. How can a virgin get pregnant? You know who started that question? Her. It's actually a valid question. It's a science question. It's not a lack of faith question. It's a science question. But how does the angel respond? The angel says, nothing's impossible with God. Now we have zero record of this ever being duplicated or uh, you know, performed again. This is a unique circumstance, a unique situation. It violates rules of silence, uh, science. That is what a miracle is. Miracles are God suspending laws of science and directly intervening in some sort of supernatural way. And the universe has room for that. So that's what this is. This is a virgin birth. Uh, it's a miracle. It's a supernatural act of God. Now, the angel says to her in verse 28, and this is an important you know, greeting that I want to spend the rest of our morning looking at. The angel says, greetings, the angel says, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. I want to take that greeting and just kind of split it in half and talk about the, the first part, greetings, favored one, and then talk about the second part, the Lord is with you. Because when it comes to favor, the concept of God's favor, I have very rarely heard pastors and churches talk about it. I've only heard pastors on TV talk about it. And the pastors on TV that talk about it don't talk about it correctly. So let's get a biblical understanding of what God's favor looks like because God's favor is not God doing you a favor, which is often the understanding that we have. It's just God like, I got you. That, that is not what God's favor is, like God letting you slide on something or God giving you everything that you've ever dreamed and hoped for. God's favor is God's grace. Now, a few weeks ago, I talked to you about how God's grace is not God sweeping our sin under the rug. It's actually empowerment. The word grace should be understood as empowerment. So when God's grace covers our sin, it's his, his empowerment to forgive our sin, but also his empowerment for us to stop sinning all the time. That he actually gives us the spiritual power to live life differently. So God's grace causes us to behave differently towards sin. We start to despise it. We start to hate it. The appeal that sinful behaviors used to have, it's not there anymore. That's God's grace. All of the spiritual gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 are actually called graces. And they are all empowerments for ministry. They're things that we do. And when the angel says, you are favored, and he says it twice, you have found favor in God's sight. That word favor in Greek is charis, which is grace. The same word for God's favor that the angel uses is the word that Paul uses for things like spiritual gifts. 
So the angel is saying to Mary, you have unique empowerment. Because no one else did what Mary did. No one else had to do what Mary did. I want to define favor this way. Unique empowerment for a unique task. It's God giving you the empowerment to do what only he, uh, he is asking only you to do. So, you know, who else had to carry the Messiah in her womb? No one. Who else had to deal with the ridicule and criticism that came with that? No one. Who else had to watch their son crucified for the sins of the world? No one. Mary is totally unique in this assignment. No one else shares that assignment. So God is uniquely empowering her for her unique assignment. Does that make sense? So you all have unique assignments too. God's favor on your life is the unique empowerment that you need to fulfill your unique assignment, your unique calling, your unique purpose. I mean, no one else is called to lead your family but you and your spouse if you have one. So instead of waiting for someone else to get the empowerment to lead your family, recognize God has favored you to lead your family and lead yourself. Does that make sense? When God gives you favor that only you have, it's to fulfill a calling that only you have. Does that make sense? So when I say, or other people say, this person has God's favor, we are not saying they have more or less favor than another person. We are saying they have different favor than another person. So, for instance, my neighbor next door has zero favor to raise my kids. Right? I receive that favor because it's a unique assignment for me. So God has empowered me uniquely and my wife to do that, if that makes sense. So when you have a distinct calling or assignment, God empowers you to fulfill it distinctly. And that is a biblical understanding of favor. Unique empowerment for a unique task. Now, favor comes with a burden. Uh, We often think that when we begin to follow Jesus and go deeper in Jesus, there's no burdens that come with that. Now, Jesus said his burden is easy. What that means is he empowers us to carry the burden. But there's still a burden. There is still a burden. Every old, almost, almost every Old Testament prophet, when they open up their prophetic book, they start it by saying, the word of the Lord came to so-and-so, Isaiah, Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to. The word of the Lord is a burden. I don't mean a burden in a way that it breaks your back and depresses you and makes you dread it and get resentful. I just mean that it is an internal fire that drives you to continue to persist in the calling you have even when it's not easy. So like Jeremiah and Isaiah, these prophets who had these burdens, Mary who had this burden from the Lord. Listen, it was so powerful in them that even when it got uncomfortable, even when it got difficult, even when it cost them, they couldn't stop. They just couldn't. There's like a fire in them that won't stop. So the prophets had it, the apostles had it, Mary has this burden that comes from the Lord, but God empowers her to bear the burden. God's favor often leads to man's rejection. Uh, This is a theme all through the Bible. God favored Jesus. How did people respond to Jesus? I've said this many, many times, but it's amazing to me that Jesus, who went around healing the sick, casting out demons, feeding the hungry, raising the dead... 
What thanks did he get from the, the bulk of the world? Kill him. Right? Only a small group of people appreciated that. The reason that they wanted to kill Jesus was because Jesus was telling them, repent, which is change. Stop. You're thinking wrong thoughts about God. Listen, this is how much people hate to be told to repent. That they would kill a man that fed the hungry and healed the sick. I mean, we've done this to prophets and apostles all of humanity. I mean, Martin Luther King Jr. People hated so much being told to change their way that they would rather kill him. Right? I mean, we, we, Jesus, the Old Testament prophets, the New Testament apostles, went around being really nice to everyone. But because their message was repent. John the Baptist, what did John the Baptist ever do to anyone? Except say, you're sinning. He didn't lay his hands on anyone. He didn't steal from anyone. He didn't hurt from anyone. All he did was say, hey, uh, you're in sin to Herod. And Herod had his head taken off. So God's favor does not mean everything's going to be strawberries and sunrises for you. God's favor will potentially lead to man's rejection in your life. And you're going to need to be prepared for that. Because... I know that many times when we talk about God's favor, we paint it as like everything's going to be good. God's favor is promotions. God's favor is bigger houses and better cars. And that's not the way it went for anyone in the Bible. God's favor was, this is going to be challenging, but you will not be without strength. You will be provided with the power necessary. Uh, look at the other people in the Bible that it says they were favored. Noah, in Genesis 6, 8, it says Noah's, Noah was favored. Noah, the first person to ever say it's going to flood, because there had been no floods prior to that, had God's favor. You know what God's favor led to in his life? Public shame. Everyone just was like, you're crazy, dude. You know how long it took Noah to build that ark? Over a hundred years. Over a hundred years of faithfulness with nothing to show for it until the end. I mean, like, he didn't get to take that boat out on the weekend. He had nothing to show for it. He lost time and money that he could have put into his own pursuits. Right? I mean, think about what it cost him to be faithful to God. Noah had God's favor, but it led him to a life of public reproach. And reproach is just disapproval or disappointment. Have you ever disappointed anyone? Oh man, I hate that feeling. Or you feel someone's disapproval. And then what makes it worse is when it's public. Have you ever had anyone make their disappointment in you, like on Facebook? No? I'm the only one? Okay, well, all right. Well, I'll fix that for you by the end of the day. All right? So... Man, <clears throat> when someone disapproves of you or is disappointed in you and they make it public, that's what these folks went through. Here Mary is, she's pregnant, but not married. And she's a young, like, 15 and under girl. Listen, there was a stigma attached to that. I don't think any of you are surprised to hear that. I mean, Joseph was actually about to divorce her, it says in Matthew, because... Every indication was, you've cheated on me. You've been unfaithful. And 
It took an angel showing up and convincing Joseph, like, actually, when she says it's God's, she's telling the truth. He got the DNA test out and everything. <laughs> Moses had God's favor. Was Moses' life easy? No. Moses had one to two million people that he had to lead through the desert. I can't lead my three kids through Target. <laughs> he had to lead one to two million people through the desert. And do you know who they went to when they had a small claims lawsuit? Moses. Do you know who they went to when they were sick and had leprosy or other diseases? Moses. Who'd they go to when they were thirsty? Moses. When they were tired of eating salads every day and wanted some meat, they went to Moses. This guy, God's favor in his life was not rainbows and sunshine all the time. But God empowered him. Now Moses was imperfect and Moses sinned and that resulted in him not entering the promised land. But I don't think anyone would say that Moses' ministry was not empowered by God. Then Jesus, the ultimate picture of God's favor, is known as the suffering servant. Jesus, more than anyone, experienced public reproach. Most of the people that Jesus came to save were disappointed in the salvation that he offered. Because they wanted immediate political financial salvation. And he was saying, I'm actually going to save you spiritually. And they were so disappointed that they ultimately chose a murderer, Barabbas, rather than Jesus. Jesus experienced public reproach and he will also experience public glory when he returns. Favor does not mean that things are going to come easily. It actually means that God will empower you to do hard things. You won't have to do hard things in your own strength. Uh, <laughs> favor is not a walk in the park. Favor is you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but fear no evil because God protects you. Favor is not, it's all downhill from here. Favor is God saying, it's actually all uphill from here, but I will be behind you, pushing you. I will provide the strength for this, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. I'll just provide the strength. So, greetings favored one is a weighty greeting, which is why Mary was perplexed. I mean, then the angel says, God is with you. She should have just been like, oh no, please. Because when you say God is with someone, you said that to Moses. <laughs> you know, like, every time God is with someone in the Bible, it's the beginning of a mission. It's the beginning of a mission for Moses. It's the beginning of a mission for Mary. Mary's mission is so profound because this is what Mary has been entrusted with. This is, this is why God had to be with her, because she was going to need it. This is Mary's mission. You have to steward the central person of God's redemptive plan in the world. I'm going to take the most important person in history, give them to you as a baby, and I need you to take care of them. I mean, have you, I don't know if you've ever been entrusted with anything like someone's house keys or someone's kids or someone's pet. This is the God of the universe saying, Here's my son, the Messiah, you have been waiting for. 
you're going to have to care for him. And the word that comes to mind when I think about this is stewardship. That Mary knew, she had a profound sense that this boy is mine, but primarily he's his. I am holding on to this gift for God. Therefore, I have to steward this well. Does that make sense? I mean, everything she did in her parenting was stewardship, whether, you know, whether it was good or bad. Jesus was perfect, Mary not so much. She might have made some mistakes. In fact, I can think of one in particular when she left him for three days. I think, was it three days? I think it was three days. Mary and Joseph and all their family were going into the city of Jerusalem for a big festival. They go into the city. Man, all their friends are around, their kids are around. Just like at your house on Christmas Day or Thanksgiving, you let the kids go off and play by themselves, right? Because, like, who wants to really be with them? So the kids go off there, and it's like, all right, everybody, time to go. Time to leave Jerusalem, go back to Galilee or wherever they were living at the time. And they leave, and it's like, have you seen Jesus? No, I haven't seen Jesus. He's probably off with his cousins. And one day goes by, two days, three days. They're like, I haven't seen Jesus in three days. And they're like, I haven't seen him either. Hey, have you guys, is Jesus with you? How about, is he with you? They're like, ah! They bust it back to Jerusalem. They're looking for Jesus everywhere. 12-year-old Jesus. And when they find him, they, they find him in the temple. And Jesus is teaching the adults. <laughs> I mean, my son thinks he's a know-it-all. Jesus literally knew it all. He's teaching the adults. And Mary and Joseph showed up like, what are you doing? You're going to give your wife or your mother a heart attack. And Jesus says, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Oh, if my son ever tries that on me. <laughs> the one person that could get away with that was Jesus. And he got away with it because he was right. But, so Mary was not perfect. That was probably a little violation in her stewardship responsibilities. Thankfully, God oversaw the whole thing and preserved Jesus, and Jesus was right where he was supposed to be. But Mary's mission that the Lord is with her in is caring for the Messiah, the Savior of the world. God says to Moses before he takes the people of Israel through the promised land, I'm with you. God says to Mary before giving birth to Jesus, I'm with you. There's one more prominent place in the New Testament where God says that he is with someone. It's in the end of Matthew, verses, uh, chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Jesus says to his disciples, and uh, also to us, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God was with Moses. God was with Mary. Both of those things resulted in a mission that they were responsible to fulfill. So when God says that he's with the disciples, he's sending them out on a mission, and we are the continuation of that mission. We are both the recipients, but also those that are responsible to carry on the mission that Jesus has said he was present with the disciples in the church to perform. So our mission is not to receive the Messiah into our womb, but to receive him into our heart and then take him to other people. The same way that Mary had to steward 
the person of Jesus, we steward the message of Jesus. And we have a responsibility to make sure that the message of Jesus is something that we hold on to and steward and manage well. We have to make sure that it fulfills its purpose. God is with us. I mean, God said, Jesus said, Jesus who is and was God, said, I am with you always. He's not with us to be comfortable. He's not with us to take it easy. He's not with us to play it safe. He's with us to fulfill his mission. He's with us to bring about the redemption of mankind and the reconciliation of people to God. That's what he's with us to do. That's the mission that he's empowered us to fulfill. A lot of times we get tired following Jesus because we're doing stuff he never promised to empower. We are doing man-made religion, self-made spirituality. And I mean, you can do that, but you've got to do it in your own strength. And you'll find that it's exhausting. You'll find that it doesn't get you anywhere because you and I don't, in and of ourselves, have the spiritual power necessary to bring about any fruit. I mean, John 15 says, apart from Jesus, we bear zero fruit, no fruit. But when we abide in Jesus, not only do we bear fruit, we bear fruit that lasts Amen. forever. So when, we're, when we find that our spiritual lives are draining and exhausting, perhaps it's because we're doing it our own strength. And perhaps it's because we're doing things that Jesus never empowered us to do anyway. Maybe we're taking control. Maybe we have our own agenda that we're following. Now, uh, you know, when I look at this life of Mary and like this angel showing up and these prophecies being fulfilled and the promise that God is with her, I think, man, I hope she wrote this stuff down. <laughs> If I was with her, I'd be like, you need to journal that. Now, it actually says that she treasured these things up in her heart. So I don't know if she wrote them down, but she thought about it a lot. You know why it's important to revisit the work that God's done in your life? Because there's going to be a day where you're going to need to be reminded of it. There's an author named Jack Deere who says it this way, The clearer the revelation, the harder the task. The more profoundly God speaks to you about something, the harder the mission is going to be. If he makes something in your life really clear, really obvious, speaks to you really powerfully, it's because you're going to need to be convinced of it. Because there's going to come a day where you're going to be like, this is way harder than I thought it was going to be. Are you sure, God, that this is what you called me to? And you're going to be able to look back to that moment like Mary had, where there was an obvious encounter with God that you had that convinced you beyond a shadow of a doubt this is what he has for me and for my life. This is why Mary was so faithful in her service to Jesus. She saw herself as a servant. In verse 38, this is Mary's response to the angel. This is Mary's response to the invitation from God. She says, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. She identifies herself first. I am the bond slaver. I'm the servant of the Lord. She was faithful in her assignment because she knew she was a servant. She didn't have selfish ambitions, or if she had selfish ambitions, her little boy told her, uh, you're going to have to die to yourself. I mean, all her selfish goals and ambitions would have died. She has one ambition now, please God. I am actually very much pro-ambition. 
I think you should be ambitious. I just think your ambitions should be to satisfy God and to please God, not to satisfy yourself. It shouldn't have to do with the square footage of your house or the, uh, how new your car is or how much money is in the bank. Your ambition should be to go as deep into God as he's going to permit me to and to be, bear as much fruit that lasts as possible. Those are Christ-like ambitions. So Mary says, I'm a servant. I'm not the boss. I'm not here to call the shots. She identifies herself as a servant. And then I love what she says here. May it be done to me according to your word. May it be done to me according to your word. You know, when Jesus was in the garden the night before he was crucified, this was not an easy night for Jesus. He was praying so intently that he began to sweat actual blood, which is a medical condition that people experience under stress. He began to sweat blood. And you know what Jesus prayed? Not my will, but yours be done. I wonder if he didn't learn that from Mary, who said, may it be done to me according to your word. If it wasn't Mother Mary who taught that concept to little boy Jesus, that listen, God's will is always more important than our will. And when Jesus was a 33-year-old man, that lesson from mom, that mom had lived out, came back. Now, I'm not sure because it doesn't say that in the passage, but I, I just wonder that. Mary modeled that for Jesus. And when Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done, it's really an echo of what Mary prayed here. And I think that she likely could have taught him that. Now, what Mary truly did here, and I love this about Mary, she just said yes to God. Um, she didn't say, that, listen, I want to make sure I uh, couch this with some emotional health stuff. If your spouse or your boss or your pastor asks you to do something, you do not have to say yes immediately. You have to say yes eventually. Just kidding. <laughs> listen, if your boss or your spouse or your neighbor or your pastor asks you to do something, you're allowed to say, let me think about it or let me pray about it. When God asks you to do something, it's no use saying, let me pray about it. Who are you going to pray to? The same, the same God that said, do it? So obviously, you have to di distinguish, is this God saying this, or is this a person saying this? Because when it's a person, you should think about it, pray about it, and hear from God. But when God tells you directly, there's no negotiating, praying, it's yes. The answer to God is always yes. If you, you, know, if you say, oh, let me think about it, he's like, I already thought about it for you. This is what I want you to do. And, and what, why Mary's response is so unique is because not everyone did respond this way. How did Moses respond when God said, here's your mission? Moses like, I don't talk no good. Please don't make me speak and lead people. When, God, when an angel showed up to Gideon, and said, Gideon, you mighty man, which I still think might have been sarcasm. When God showed up to Gideon, and Gideon said, oh no, not me, I'm the least important person in my whole family. All the men were like, I, here's excuses why you got the wrong person. Mary did not react that way. Mary just said, may it be done to me according to your word. She did not come up with an excuse. Now, she asked how will this be, for I am a virgin? Land, I don't hold that against her. 
I'd have asked that question too. That's not a lack of faith question. That's a science question. That's a biology question. But she immediately said yes to God. She trusted God, and I think that's the key to her faithfulness. She saw herself as a servant, and she said yes to God. If you can maintain that attitude, you'll be faithful in your assignment as well. Now, this morning, um, we're going to do a couple things. Uh, first, in a few moments, we're going to have the children come up and uh, entertain us. They're going to sing a Christmas song. So they've been working hard on this. You better clap real hard. But I want to give an opportunity uh, for you to respond after that. So I'm going to need you to stay focused on what Jesus is doing in your life right now. I want to, I want to speak directly to those of you that are sensing and have been sensing for a couple days or a couple weeks or a couple months that God is calling you into something more or something greater. That God has been putting his finger on your life and identifying certain things like I'll just say it the way it says it in the passage. Areas where God has given you favor. And God is drawing you. And he's saying, okay, it's time for you to step into this. God is very inviting. He, he invites us into life with him. If you have been sensing that, if you've been feeling like, oh, I really do feel like God has been, he's been like hammering this thing in my life. It comes up every day. It comes up every week. You want to respond to that. And you want to respond to that with, yes, but I know sometimes it's hard to immediately say yes. Sometimes you, there's either not enough faith there or there's something that's holding you back that you know if I go forward with God, I'm going to have to dump this thing. So what we're going to do after the kids sing for us is, uh, I have a few of our elders and their wives who are going to be willing to pray with you. So not right this minute, but Scott Newcomer and John McManus and uh, John Eric and their wives will come up front. And their, their purpose is going to be to help you say yes to God. You know, if, if, there's, if you need them to pray with you, if you need them to uh, encourage you, if you need them to stand behind you and support you and pat you on the back, and you guys are allowed to pat them as hard as you need to. Uh, if you need someone to do that, to help you say yes, then we're going to provide that. This is essentially a midwife who's going to come alongside you and help you say yes to God. They're not going to talk you out of anything. You hear that? Don't talk them out of anything. Um, but this is an important step that we take where we respond to God with yes. I opened up this sermon by saying this. We do not worship Mary. We do not venerate Mary. We do not have statues of Mary. We do not pray to Mary. We do not sing to Mary. Um, Mary is like us. She was not born with a sinless nature, as some teach. Um, she did not maintain her perpetual virginity, as some teach. She's just like us, but man, is she a good example. She doesn't save us. We don't have to pray to her. But she really is a great example of what it means to be faithful to Jesus, what it means to serve Jesus. Uh, she is, to me, a hero in the Bible. Uh, someone that I can look at and be like, woof, that's a life of faith that's modeled well and that I want to learn from. So I want to pray for us. Uh, 
that we can respond while I'm praying. John Eric, could you do me a favor and let them know in the office we're ready for them. And then uh, the kids are going to come out and sing for us. And then once I dismiss you, our elders will be up here to pray with you. Jesus, we are so grateful for your example, but also that you left us other people in Scripture that we could look to as an example. So they come underneath you, Jesus, but we are grateful for the example of Mary. We're grateful for the role of the supernatural in her life. We're grateful for her example of faithfulness because she did not have an easy road or an easy task and she was completely alone in her task aside from your presence with her. Uh, Jesus, I pray that you would empower us by the Holy Spirit. You've given us favor. You've given us strength. Your presence is with us as well. And so, Lord, we rely on your strength, not our own strength. We want to do everything that you've given us to do in the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen.